This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus, episode 621. This week, we welcome Dr. Delphine Farmer of Colorado State University and Home Campaign. We're calling this show Indoor versus Outdoor Air Chemistry, Cooking, Cleaning, and COVID. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They are the reason we can continue doing the show. Please support our sponsors and let them know you appreciate their support of IAQ Radio Plus. Our marquee sponsor is Instascope at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org. The American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute at CIRIScience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association at IAQA.org. The Restoration Industry Association at RestorationIndustry.org. The Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at iicrc.org and Healthy Buildings America 2021 at hb2021-america.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories at aemlinc.com, Particles Plus at particlesplus.com, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions at graywolfsensing.com, TSI Inc. at TSI.com and Healthy Indoors Magazine at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to John LaBotere, Florida Indoor Air Quality Solutions, Orlando, Florida, who was first to identify I'm Crazy as the written work in which the fictional character Holden Morrissey Caulfield first appears in print. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, April 2nd, 2021, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring of the indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Here is today's trivia question. Name the U.S. governmental agency whose mission is to discover how the environment affects people in order to promote healthier lives. Back to you, Joe. Okay. Hey, get one of those nice TSI cups they put together uh, if you get the answer right here. So anyway, Dr. Delphine Farmer is an associate professor in the Department of Chemistry at Colorado State University. Her research focuses on building new instrumentation to measure reactive trace gases and particles in the atmosphere in order to understand how humans are changing our environment. She is very interested in emissions from forest, but recently has taken a deep dive into the complex world of indoor chemistry. She grew up in Canada, did her undergrad work at McGill University, and then moved to warmer climates to earn her master's in environmental science policy and management and her PhD in chemistry, both from the University of California at Berkeley. Welcome to the show, Dr. Farmer. Welcome back, I should say. Thank you. It's good to see you. Great to have you. Um, hey, let's let's talk a little bit about the outdoor chemists moving indoors. You know, you, you were very involved in outdoor chemistry for years. You got pulled into the home chem project and started doing the, you know, a, a deep dive into indoor chemistry. What, tell us a little bit about what stands out to you when you try and compare indoor and outdoor chemistry. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the thing that shocked me the most when I started uh, started taking measurements indoors was that we we had to recalibrate all of our instrumentation because the concentration outside uh, are so much lower than what they are indoors of 
most of the compounds that I was looking at. So volatile organic compounds, uh, the VOCs, they are orders of magnitude higher in concentration indoors and outdoors. And that was absolutely shocking to me. So we had to change the way we change the way we measure. And then we also had to sort of, I realized we had to change the way we think about chemistry. Um, outdoors, most of atmospheric chemistry and air quality is driven by sunlight. Uh, and that just kickstarts a whole series of chemical reactions. Indoors, it doesn't matter if you have windows in a room or not, there's just not enough light to do the kind of chemistry that uh, happens outdoors. So it suddenly became a whole, whole new ball game in terms of, of what chemistry drives air quality inside a building from outside. And, and you're also looking at large areas versus smaller areas, I guess. How did you make that adjustment? <laughs> yeah, so that, that was another big one. It's, it's both space and time really shifted when I moved from outdoors to indoors. Uh, so outside, I think about, you know, entire forests, we think about taking measurements with wind moving. So the air that we measure sort of represents uh, at least uh, many, you know, a county-wide measurement, shall we say, and sometimes if we get into a plane and we think about air um, that we're measuring as we're flying over a region, then we're thinking about state-level air quality and measurements and maybe even how air moves from Asia to North America or from North America to Europe. Uh, those sorts of, that spatial scale is completely different uh, from when we suddenly go indoors and you start thinking about a couple of meters, you know, several feet suddenly starts to be the spatial scale. So just what we were measuring and what it meant was very different. And then the time scales are so different. Outdoors, we think about measurements and what they mean on the time scale of days or weeks or months. And indoors, you know, the air changes in a matter of minutes. And so we suddenly have to start making really fast measurements and, and the way we interpret them is very different. So it's been a big shift. I'm curious, how, with respect to the outdoor air, um, is it getting better? I mean, it seems like, you know, with EPA and the Clean Air Act and so on and so forth, it seems like uh, it should be getting better than at least it was, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's absolutely accurate. Um, the Clean Air Act, in many ways, has been the most successful piece of legislation, if you think about how many lives have been saved by it. Uh, the, the air outdoors, and uh, particularly in urban environments like Los Angeles or New York City uh, or Atlanta, those, those urban areas, the air quality has improved dramatically orders of magnitude. We suddenly now, most of the air, most of the time is at healthy levels outside. There are a couple of interesting exceptions. I happen to live in one of those interesting exceptions, Colorado's air. It started to improve and then it sort of stalled out and now it's potentially getting worse in the summers. And so there's a lot of a lot of questions about why and what's happening, but honestly, it's all so much better than the air quality was 30 years ago, uh, 40 years ago in the United States. And is that true with both the, the chemicals and the particles? I, I don't know if you can yes. separate those. Yes. Yeah, we can absolutely separate them. So the two things we think about in terms of outdoor air quality, one are the particles. So we think about PM 2.5. And that's, again, that's gotten better um, really across the board in the United States. And then we also think about uh, ozone is really the the sort of key air toxic that we think about for in terms of air quality, it's the gap, little gas phase molecule. And that's the other one that's really gotten better uh, across really all of the United States. And that's, you know, that's those uh, emissions controls on vehicles has been a huge driver of that improvement. Uh, and then uh, industry regulation on coal fired power plants that those have had dramatic impacts on, on outdoor air quality. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned health effects. And, and that's another, I think, kind of a paradigm shift maybe for you when you're, you're dealing with the health effects of outdoor air versus indoor air. Um, you know, outdoor air, you're looking at uh, heart conditions, respiratory over big populations. Indoor air, you're kind of looking more at, you know, individuals or small groups of people. Have you run into, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, that's a that's a really interesting one. I mean, I think outdoors, 
outdoors, we've had the advantage as a scientific community. And I should say that's not my research, but I work with people who think um, epidemiologists who think about this problem. And what they can do is they can say, okay, when outdoor air quality is really bad, what happens to hospital rates and asthma attacks and heart attacks, right? And you can look at this on these really large scales. Again, we were, I was sort of saying outdoor air, we think about counties and states. And now, now there's really neat work getting into zip code by zip code. Um, but it's, you're, you're integrating over quite a large number of people and, we're, and everyone outside is getting exposed to roughly similar amounts in one sort of one region. Indoors, I mean, you know that the air you breathe in your bathroom is different from the air that you breathe when you're cooking in your kitchen, right? And so the spatial variability, even for one person inside a building is totally different, but then everyone responds to those chemicals differently. And I think that's what makes indoor air quality. It's what makes it so interesting, but it's also what makes it so challenging is every individual has a very unique experience with their indoor environment and their health effects are going to be very different. So the tools haven't really been there for epidemiologists to study um, on a population scale. You know, what, what is the average human's response to cooking or cleaning? You know, that's, that's really hard to do. And so I think that's been, that's sort of really, it's been a grand challenge in the, in the IAQ world. Another thing when we talked earlier that you mentioned um, was how the, the chemistry and the chemicals react with surfaces indoors. You've got surfaces outdoors, but uh, if I got you many more indoors, is that something Yeah, else? yeah. So, so as a chemist, I think about what we call the surface area to volume ratio. So you can think about how much air you have relative to how much surface you area you have. And in, you know, in one room, the one I'm sitting in, I have walls and then I have, um, I have some furniture and the amount of surface area relative to the volume of air is really, really high. So everything that I am exhaling, everything that I'm inhaling is going to have interacted with the paint on the walls and the fabric on my chair. Um, and so the surface interactions with air are really strong. If I look out my window and I look at the outdoor air, sure, there's a lot of surfaces. You know, there are forests with plants with all their leaves. There's the mulch in my garden bed. There's, you know, there's, there's the surface of the planet, really. But the amount of air we're looking at, that volume, is enormous, right? It goes up miles. Um, and so we can, we, we're looking at a really different ratio of surface to volume, which means that if I step outside, the air I'm exhaling might take a really long time before it interacts with the surface. So uh, why we care is that the chemistry is really different. So indoors, surfaces matter to a huge extent. We've never really thought about them outdoors. You know, that, and another thing that changes indoors versus outdoors is I think ozone and some of the reactions that occur. I wonder if you could touch on that. And, the surfaces, I think when I've looked at the home chem studies and I, you know, I look at the abstracts, I'm not looking at it to see, you know, if you use the right technique or whatever, I just look at the abstracts. And, and the thing that stands out to me is how much chemistry is going on that I never thought about in my indoor air quality, you know, investigations over the years. Yeah. I mean, the amount of chemistry is amazing. As I said, Earlier, you know, I thought, well, okay, we don't have any light indoors, so we shouldn't be doing this fast chemistry. And that's just not true. It turns out that what happens is all of the molecules we bring into a room. So um, the, the molecules I'm exhaling right now and that we, you know, if I cut a lemon in, in my kitchen, all of those volatiles, what they can do is the first thing they'll do is interact with surfaces. So wall surfaces, paint surfaces, et cetera. And when they hit that surface, they just start to sit and build up a, build up a layer. And I, I hesitate to call it grime because it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that all of those molecules stick there. They can react with each other on the surfaces. They can do chemistry. And then they, and then they sort of slowly will come off over time. And so we always have, it's like always having this nice big pool of, of things that we thought were volatile, but are actually semi-volatile on surfaces. 
So then they come off, but then you can start to think about all of this other crazy chemistry that happens. So if you open a window and you bring in just a little bit of ozone um, into, into a home, then that ozone will react and it'll react with the oils that are on your skin um, really rapidly. And that releases a whole pile of volatiles, reacts with things in the in the air with, all, with different molecules in the air, but then it also reacts with all of the surfaces and that sort of layer upon layer of, of crud that we've built up on all of the surfaces inside. So we start to see that, that chemistry evolve and change. So yeah, you bring in, I mean, I think the way I think about it is you know, if you think about a forest and you've built up um, this huge amount of dead wood and dead leaves at the base of a forest and a fire comes through, you've got so much fuel to burn a fire, right? And you can get a really strong forest fire that way. I think of indoor air versus outdoor air from that perspective. Outdoor air, we actually don't have that much fuel just sitting around. The chemistry is always going. It's like, a, it's like a little sort of smoldering fire outside all the time. So the fuel never builds up. You come indoors and the amount of organic molecules, stuff in the air um, that potentially can react is so huge that you've just built up all this fuel and you are ready to, you know, light a match, bring a little bit of ozone in, and then the chemistry is off to the races. So because we have so little chemistry happening inside, we managed to build up all of this fuel to do reactions. Interesting. Cliff, do you have a follow-up? Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, you know, I think one of the big things with ozone is ozone, you know, has been used in the disaster restoration industry for probably 50 years, uh, maybe even longer than that. And, you know, it was intentionally brought into to, to buildings, you know, after fires, we were told by the manufacturers of the equipment that you plug this in, and this is going to convert everything uh, in all the bad stuff inside the building to carbon dioxide and water vapor, period. So we tend to believe them. So, you know, we go into houses and, you know, we, we, we turn on uh, this equipment. So now I think maybe ozone is is being used slightly less uh it's been being replaced now by something called hydroxyl radicals and other types of ultraviolet light equipment and so on and so forth uh some of which or all of which uh has the capacity uh to to produce ozone as well so i'm not sure whether they're uh you know doing the, the same thing or whether it's different but in any event uh, you know, there have been problems in the industry where, where this equipment's been used and it's created new odors and they it, they can't be found. And I was just wondering if you could comment on it. Yeah, what a great, what a great uh, question. So ozone, hydroxyl radicals, those are both what I think of as being, they're both very powerful oxidants. And so the idea is that they react with with molecules, whether it's that, again, that oil on your skin, the tissues inside your lungs or grime on the surface of a wall, they react with it. And that reaction causes molecules generally to fall apart. And, um, and then we see some really neat chemistry. So the idea is fantastic. And it's just as you say, like we're gonna add enough of this oxidant and it's gonna eat away at molecules until they break down and form carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide and water. And that sounds great. The problem is that on the way to carbon dioxide and water, you make all sorts of other molecules. Formaldehyde is a big one. Um, you can think about other air toxics. You make little molecules that are really good at forming particles in the air. So if you add ozone or hydroxyl radicals, you are going to make these really tiny particles and then you're gonna inhale those if you happen to be in the room. Um, and and then the other thing to think about is that, so not just those sort of toxic byproducts and unintended consequences, but what happens if you don't move everything all the way to CO, CO2 and water? You know, then you, then you haven't necessarily treated the problem, but you maybe created more. Um, but you also, they're, they're pretty indiscriminate. Right? Ozone and hydroxyl radicals, they don't ask if this is a molecule you want to keep in a room or if this is a molecule you want to get rid of. And so, you know, you'll hear these horror stories, right, of people who had precious artwork that's been exposed to ozone or computer screens and electronics uh, or other important household components that got exposed to those oxidants. They're going to get eaten away. Um, 
But for my mind, the biggest concern I have is human health and, and people. And so I think if people are in a location where hydroxyl radicals and ozone are being released and you're breathing them in, they'll, they'll, they'll get through your, you know, they'll get through a lot of masks and they're going to react just the same way they reacted with that grime and the odors you're trying to get rid of. They'll react with the tissues of your lung. They'll react with, you know, your eyes. And there's, there's a lot of problems that can happen with those. So I'm very wary of improper use. I mean, I think the restoration industry, that's, I mean, you're, you're dealing with things after disasters. So if you don't have people in room and you, and you have to, you then have to think about costs and benefits. Is there a better way to do this? And are there unintended consequences? Um, but, but I think I always think of health and safety first. And, um, and that, that, that makes me very wary of using ozone and, and really wary of hydroxyl radicals. I'm curious, how long, do, you mentioned unintended consequences. How long do they last, though? Yeah, so this is one of the amazing things we learned in home camp. So we learned that you might think you're producing a molecule, something like formic acid or acetic acid. These are super volatile molecules, and that means they like to stay in the gas phase. So they should then just exit out your HVAC system or through, you know, permeate through your walls and get outdoors. But it turns out that even those really volatile gases um, still, we have so much surface area in our rooms that they still like to stick on the walls and stick on the indoor surfaces and slowly permeate out. So what does that mean practically? That means that all of these toxic byproducts, and I'm thinking, I mean, we know everything from acrylin to Limonene, that one doesn't worry me so much about health, but acrylin does. Um, acetaldehyde, formaldehyde, those molecules, they get stuck on walls and then they slowly, slowly permeate out. So over the course of months, potentially longer, those molecules are just going to bleed off the air and into the air that you're breathing. So that that I have, that's one of the reasons I have grave concerns about using some of these powerful oxidants. You know, you're, you came from outdoors, you went big time indoors, and you're primarily dealing with air chemistry. But I'm wondering if the biologicals, both indoors and outdoors, kind of throw a curve into things for you, you know, because... Oh. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, biologicals are such an interesting question. I had no idea that um, we should be thinking about microbes in indoor environments, right? There's all these people who think about the bacteria and viruses and, and uh, fungal components that are indoors. And I thought that was only, you know, I thought it was only about mold in wet houses. And boy, was I schooled on that one. Um, yeah, indoor air is, is really, really um, diverse. And there are lots and lots of microbes. And it turns out that they might be really important. Um, I think we need to be thinking about that. And I think we just don't know enough about how how microbes influence indoor air and whether that's health uh, has health effects. I think, I think that's a really big question. I've got a couple text questions on a related topic here. Um, one says, didn't people say ozone has a 15 minute half life yet I have smelled ozone in treated rooms 24 hours later. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. So, okay. So we say, sometimes we talk about like half life, but in indoor environments, all bets are off for chemicals because, again, you have all that fuel. So sometimes when I calculate out the half-life of something like ozone, I, um, I'll see a half-life that's like three minutes, and sometimes I'll see one that's an hour, and it really depends on what's going on in the room. Uh, in terms of what you're smelling, I'm going to guess it's actually not the ozone because the ozone probably has reacted away within 24 hours. It'd be be shocked if it hadn't. You'd be in a very, you're, you would probably be in a tin can or a stainless steel chamber. But what you're probably smelling are all the byproducts, that all the things that ozone reacts with. And then uh, your nose and your, your brain are going to associate those smells with the ozone itself. We, we can't really distinguish between all of those components. So my bet is that you're measuring those toxic byproducts or other byproducts of ozone reaction. 
And those are certainly going to be in the room for, I mean, your, your nose is a pretty sensitive instrument. Um, so you're, you're smelling it certainly for a day, but they're probably lasting there for, for a lot longer as well. So, I mean, I, I always believe in trusting, trusting one's instincts. And so, you, you know, that's absolutely right. You know that if it's not ozone, it's certainly the chemistry from ozone that's still there. I've got another comment on um, after ozone use or hydroxyl use in indoor environments. Uh, John measures for uses a particle counter for maltimeter and ozone monitor. And every time he says the ultrafine particles are substantially elevated. So it kind of confirms what you were just saying. Yeah, absolutely. You have a pretty good detector if you're seeing that. A lot of the cheap ones aren't good enough to be able to see those ultrafine particles. Um, but that's exactly what, you know, I will say that's exactly what three decades of atmospheric chemistry tells you should be happening. Your, your, you know, your measurements are confirming that theory. Where, you know, you see that hydroxyl radicals, they react with stuff and that just makes those ultrafine particles. Same thing that happens in the atmosphere, but remember all that fuel in the indoor environment. So it's like happening on steroids. So ozone, hydroxyl radicals, those make those particles. UV is a bit of a different ball game, I'll say, because it really depends on what kind of UV light you have. Some UV light makes ozone. Some UV light makes hydroxyl radicals. Some UV light doesn't. Um, so it really depends on the quality of the lights and how it's set up. But ozone and, and hydroxyl radicals, those, those, uh, your, your, your measurements are absolutely spot on. They'll make ultrafine particles. If you have a little light around, they'll probably also make ozone. I, I got another text. I just want to ask it because someone joined us a little late. Are you working on the equity IAQ and home energy upgrade study at CSU? Ah, I know about this study. It's really cool. Um, but I am, I'm not directly involved, but I, I find myself getting pulled in because it's such a neat, neat project. There's this idea of looking at what happens to homes when you take uh, people from low income housing and uh, like HUD, uh, the housing and urban development uh, uh, sort of branch of the government, they start thinking about building building better homes. So trying to understand what happens to that indoor air quality and how that relates to relates to equity and justice issues. I, I think it's a really important question, um, but I, I would defer to some of, my, some of my awesome colleagues at CSU for that. You know, this is an off the wall question here, but I, I, there's so many of you from Colorado State, University of Colorado, all involved in, why, how did you all end up in that same area there? <laughs> You know, Colorado is a pretty darn awesome place to live. Um, but I also say, you know, there's, there's historically, we've had a huge atmospheric science community here in Colorado. And that's because uh, the National Center for Atmospheric Research. So that's a National Science Foundation funded institute that's in Boulder, Colorado. And then the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, they have big labs uh, in, in Boulder and they study uh, atmospheric chemistry and air quality um, and, and, and a, bit on, a bit on climate. And so you started with a pretty amazing outdoor set of atmospheric scientists. And then at the same time, a couple, you get a couple of people at see Boulder who think about indoor air and buildings and all of a sudden the synergies down in Boulder started to build, right? And you got chemists involved. And up at CSU, we had, people who were thinking about energy and building, really thinking about how do you make buildings more energy efficient? And then the moment you start thinking about making buildings more energy efficient, you have to suddenly start thinking about indoor air quality because that might, they, there's a bit of a battle there, right? And right. so, so that, that's how CSU started to think, well, if we're gonna try and think responsibly about buildings, then maybe we also have to think about air quality. And so that's how, and then, CU and CSU, I guess our football teams have a lot of rivalry, but our, our scientists <laughs> tend to get along pretty well. So, uh, so that's, it, it's, it's the sort of community has built and it's fantastic. I got one more quick one before we go to halftime. I got to ask, it's a text. Are cannabis terpenes contributing to Denver's ozone problem? Yeah, that is actually a really hard question to answer. So um, because it's really hard to get funding and access to study those terpenes. Um, so our research over the last decade really showed that the rise in, in 
oil and natural gas development in the front range of Colorado releases a huge amount of VOCs. And those certainly contribute a bit to some of the air quality problems we have in Denver and in the, in the front range of Colorado. So unconventional oil and gas, uh, that certainly plays a role. But there's this huge rise in greenhouses and factories um, making you know, making marijuana plants and hemp. And so huge cannabinoid terpene emission. And, uh, and we'll see, I suspect that they're certainly playing a role in Denver's air quality. Um, but, but we don't have the data yet to really, to really quantify that. Interesting. All right, let's go to halftime. We want to thank our sponsors. We'll be back with our guest, Dr. Delphine Farmer out of Colorado State University. And uh, we'll be back. Very interesting. On the second half, I want to talk more about home chem. Our marquee sponsor, Instascope. More jobs done faster with the future of IAQ assessment technology. Unlimited samples, instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, at AIHA.org, ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, at ACGIH.org, The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research, at CIRIScience.org, The Indoor Air Quality Association, promoting the exchange of indoor environmental quality information through education and research at IAQA.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry, network with leaders at restorationindustry.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry at IICRC.org and Healthy Buildings America 2021 in Honolulu, Hawaii, November 9 through 11 at HB2021-America.org. IAQ Radio industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no rush fee at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us at ParticlesPlus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, over 20 years manufacturing accurate, reliable IAQ instrumentation for portable, short-term, and continuous monitoring at GrayWolfSensing.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at tsi.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers at healthyindoors.com. Okay, we're back. We've got Dr. Delphine Farmer. We're back to the second half of our interview here. We're, we're talking about Indoor versus outdoor air chemistry, cooking, cleaning, and COVID. We're going more into the cooking, cleaning, and COVID here in the second half. But Cliff, you had a follow-up from the first half. Um, okay. Yeah, Joe, somewhere, but it's about halfway between uh, where you and I live and work. And uh, it's Jeanette, Pennsylvania. And there was a Colorado company that put in a, um, a processing plant for hemp. And it ended up uh, being closed down. And uh, we were consultants on it. It was unbelievable uh, how much odor came out of, uh, out of this facility just from trimming the plants and drying them and, and so on and so forth. It created, I mean, it, it, was, it was unbelievable. So I can't see how it can't contribute. You know, they're growing the stuff outside and then they're harvesting yeah. it and, and so on and so forth. So. Yeah, in, in Colorado, there are these um, large greenhouses, and they're making claims that they filter out their air before it comes out. But, but, but I don't see how you can filter out that amount of the amount of 
of terpenoids and volatiles that are coming out from plants. I just know, I mean, we've done measurements where you, you know, you cut tree branches or you mow the lawn and the amount of volatiles that comes out of something so simple is, is huge. Then you take something like hemp and I mean, marijuana plants are designed to create lots and lots of terpenoids, especially these newer, newer versions. And so that's just a huge amount. And I think one other, one other consideration with the indoor air quality of those sort of facilities is pesticide use, right? And there's very, very heavy pesticide use in some of those, some of those indoor growing facilities. So lots of interesting questions. Just to follow up, um, our client actually, was a printing company and they printed the packaging for like uh, McDonald's Happy Meals and so on and so forth. Their facility was directly across the street. So they stored their excess printed material in this building. And actually uh, we found uh, contamination from the, uh, you know, from the hemp oils on that, you know, we did had real sophisticated testing done and so on and so forth, but it was contaminated, and you know, it ended up being a big legal issue. It's still not settled yet, but yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a problem. And that oil moves around <laughs> inside yeah. buildings in a vapor form yeah. for sure. Yep, Absolutely. yeah, and that's and that's that example of those. You know, we well, we breathe out, but you cut a plant or a plant just photosynthesizes and grows and it emits these, these volatiles. And some of them, you know, people will tell you that cannabinoids are so large that they can't possibly stay in the gas phase. But I know that's not true. And your research also shows that's not true, right? That stuff just moves. So it's going to stick on all the building surfaces, but it'll also move through HVAC systems and diffuse through a building and absolutely then stick into on any other surfaces, including someone else's products. I, I absolutely believe that. All right. I've got a couple other text questions. We'll get to those in a moment. I really want to get to home chem. We've talked a little bit about home chem, but I, I want to give you a chance to just first tell people what your role was in home chem and maybe some, some highlights for you, what you found. Absolutely. So, so Home Chem uh, was a project that uh, I started with my friend Nina Vance. She's a professor of mechanical engineering down at CU Boulder. So about an hour down the road from me. And uh, what we wanted to do was uh, think about the chemistry inside a, a, a regular house. Um, what sort of things are we exposed to when we just go about our daily life? And so Home Chem stands for the House Observations of Microbial and Environmental Chemistry study. And so what we did was we brought about um, 15 different research groups, plus several industry representatives together uh, down at a test house, Rich Corsi's test house down at the University of Texas at Austin. And we cooked, we had a busy four weeks of repetitive cooking of stir fries and toast and making toast and uh, breakfast and then occasionally cooking a big Thanksgiving meal. And then we also cleaned uh, lots of different cleaning products over and over. And we tried to do it in a really uh, replicable manner. So we tried to really be consistent. You know, how much oil did we use in the stir fry and what temperature did we turn it to? How much, um, you know, how long did we mop the floors with the same solution? And uh, that allowed us to really probe the air current chemistry and then a little bit the surface chemistry inside a house. And so we started thinking about what that means in terms of health and in terms of exposure, uh, but also in terms of, of just um, how the chemistry of the home works. So highlights, I mean, I think for me, uh, things that I learned, cooking Thanksgiving dinner, that just emits an incredible array of compounds. Uh, it's for a relatively short period of time, but it's, you know, it's like stepping out of the plane in, in, on a really polluted day in, in Delhi and in India or Beijing and China, um, at least it's only for, you know, a short period of time when you cook, usually 20 minutes, but uh, if you're cooking Thanksgiving, it's going to be longer, um, but that was really impressive to see. And then the other thing that I was really amazed by was what happens when you clean with bleach, and that just starts this incredible array of chemistry that just gets kicked off, and uh, that, was, that was really impressive to, to think about as well. Okay, that's it. You know, you, you sent us some slides. I don't know if there's a, if there's anything in particular you wanted to pull up. I mean, just kind of, 
I'd like to maybe get into a little more detail. I don't know if you have anything on the use of the bleach or the cleaning because a lot of our people do cleaning. Yeah, absolutely. So let me let me pull up some slides and and we've got some up already. This is perfect. So um so general picture of home chem. Obviously, we spend a lot of time uh, indoors and we thought about the time. We really focused in initially on the time you spend awake <laughs> inside and what you're doing in terms of cooking and cleaning. But then we also realized that the background of the house when you're asleep or you're just sitting in your room and you're at home, that air, you know, those, all that crud on the walls and the building materials are just off gassing. And so we, we spend a lot of time thinking about what was in that air. Uh, and then uh, we can we can classify that in a couple of different ways. So this picture just shows you can think about particles uh, and you can think about the gases. And so we had different instruments looking at chemistry and composition on both those ends. Uh, and then um, actually, if we go on to the next slide, um, what you're going to see, this is what I think of as a day in the life of home chem. Okay. And so I... I love this. So what we're going to do is we'll just trace this day in the life of home chem from midnight uh, to midnight in one day. And um, and then what you see is that, you know, we show up in the morning around 630 in the morning and people show up and they start breathing. You know, people tend to do that. And so our CO2 goes up a little bit. And then we cooked breakfast and then we cooked lunch and then we cooked dinner. And each time we turn on a gas stove, the CO2 went up. But each time we cooked the gas stove, we also saw that NOx, that NO and NO2, the black and gray trace, those also went up. And those are, NO2 is a very well-known air pollutant. It's an air toxic. And those concentrations were pretty high. Um, one of the ones that made us go and recalibrate our instruments. And then you start to see those last, those top three sort of sets of traces. What you see are different gases and different things that happen. So the moment you, uh, you clean with bleach, for example, we saw these chlorinated compounds. This is um, trichloromethane. It's, so we started to see these chlorine compounds show up in the air um, after bleaching. When we cooked, obviously, we then started to see not just gases, um, the, the cooking gas, um, but we also saw other molecules, limonene, isoprene, acetone, all of those molecules start to come out and we measured those in the gas. So this is kind of a, a typical picture of what we would do at home chem and you would just see how different events would change the, the chemistry that we measured. Uh, but cleaning was an interesting, it was a really interesting one. So um, we, we really looked into bleach mopping quite a bit. And if we go, I think a couple of slides ahead, there we go. So this is sort of the picture that we developed from cleaning. So we took all these fancy instruments to look at all of the different gases in the air. And we realized that we have this simple picture of, you know, you, you just mop a floor following manufacturer's instructions. And what would happen then is we get that, that mopping, that mopping fluid just on the floor would kickstart this incredible array of chemistry. So it would react with the grime on your shoes that you've tracked in little bits of food debris that maybe got onto the floor, that nitrite, the nitrogen compounds from proteins, those would, those would start to react with the bleach. And then the other thing that would react with bleach is ammonia. And you probably know to never mix ammonia and bleach in cleaning products because you'll make these toxic chloramine compounds that will kill you. But it turns out that humans just emit ammonia when we breathe, right? We exhale ammonia. And when you cook, you also release ammonia from, um, especially if you cook meat, um, that releases ammonia. And so all of those sources would were actually enough to react with that mopping uh, fluid and create some of those same compounds that we really worry about um, just in the air. And then we would see all this other chemistry happening on the surfaces of the building. And we would see little bits of interaction with the light outside. So very complex chemistry that really went to show us that, you know, whatever you do indoors just lasts for a very long time and can have some pretty unintended consequences. I mean, just having ammonia in, in a building because people have been there and breathed, that can react with that bleach that you're cleaning, cleaning with. So those are some those are some interesting surprises we had. Yes, they are. And I've got a, a question that kind of relates to that. Um, you've done all this work on particles and, and chemical molecules and how they're emitted. But how does that complicate 
IAQ evaluation and the challenges of instrumentation and research? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. The one thing we found is that, you know, you can take all the fancy and expensive million dollars worth of instrumentation into a home and we can learn new things. But then practitioners, you know, need need to be able to go and take something that's simple. And so, you know, I think there's there's one part of an answer to that question is that we're always thinking about how to help people interpret simple measurements more easily. Um, and I think these 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 tools that measure ultrafine particles are really important. Um, but the other aspect is that taking these really impressive pieces of instrumentation, they can measure really tiny quantities of all of these very weird, weird chemicals that are in the air. Um, that's really pointing us into directions, new directions of thinking about things like unintended chemical consequences of both regular cleaners, you know, products like um, terpene scented products or bleach, uh, one of those is much more benign than the other. Um, and then uh, we might compare that to what we think about air cleaning devices that people bring into homes uh, or companies use. And so we're, we're trying to learn about that chemistry and think about what happens, you know, what happens if someone changes something about their home and what does that mean for indoor air quality? Well, you did a nice job of, of giving me the segue into the next section here. <laughs> you talk about people bringing, you know, air cleaners into their homes it's not just their homes it's into buildings and so on and um i've seen you quoted about ionizers um and being used now for covid in schools or wherever else um what do we let's talk a little a little bit about that what what do we know works for covid versus these new kind of sexy chemistries that uh people are trying yeah well what we know works is ventilation Right? We know that diluting indoor air where lots of people are breathing with outdoor cleaner outdoor air, that works. We know that putting in uh, more efficient filters, you know, MRF routine filters into your HVAC system, we and then circulating air rapidly through that, we know that that works. And it doesn't just work for COVID, right? It improves indoor air quality generally. So that's fantastic. And that works. Personal air purifiers, like little, little fans with HEPA filters, we know that that works because that pulls those aerosol particles that people have exhaled that might have that SARS-CoV-2 virus in them, that traps them. So that works. Uh, and then, of course, source control. So people wearing masks, that is the other, the other piece that really works. You know, just don't emit the, 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 the potential air toxic or pollutant. So those are all things that works. Ventilation, filtration, masking and source control. What people are doing though is trying to use fancy chemistry, right? To remove or destroy the SARS-CoV-2 virus. This is really hard to do. So EPA has this amazing list of products, list N, and that list of chemical cleaning products is designed to tell us how, um, how different products like bleach are going to destroy SARS-CoV-2 on different surfaces. So they come with a certain concentration, a recommendation of how you should mix that product, and then a contact time of how long that, that compound should be on the surface. So things like bleach, I'm a big fan of soap and water. Um, that turns out to also work very effectively um, with no toxic byproducts. Um, so those sorts of things are out there and they work. But what everybody wants to do is clean the air, right? People want to be able to remove the SARS-CoV-2 from air. And that is a lot more complicated if you wanna use chemistry. So first off, we just don't, there aren't tests. There's no assessment method that's really been established that shows if that works. But more to the point, and my bigger concern is that all of these fancy sexy air cleaning devices that use chemistry are actually very likely creating unintended consequences. There's unintended chemical byproducts that are going to be produced. So we know that with ozone, right? We went through this two decades ago with the sharper image ozone, you know, producing devices. Um, and the reasons why ozone, ozone uh, is regulated as a cleaner, uh, air cleaner by the California Air Resources Board, right? Um, so there's ozone and then there's hydroxyl radical generators. Those are being proposed and promoted. And I think these questions we've just have been talking about for the last 30 minutes are spot on. 
which you're going to make, you're going to make toxic products like formaldehyde with those. You're going to make ultra fine particles. And you're also going to start a whole pile of chemistry that you didn't, that you don't want to breathe. And we don't even know if those work. But the last set is ionizers. And that, that's one that's being very aggressively marketed. And there's just no evidence, A, that they work in real world environments. You know, you can, all these tests that these companies do, they take a box or they take a small chamber and then they show that the system reduces particles in that small, tiny chamber. But we know that buildings are more complicated than that. And an HVAC duct is more complicated, air moves through faster. And so those testing devices, those testing systems don't tell us that they work, but they also don't look for byproducts. And so with some colleagues at the Illinois Institute of Technology and at Portland State University, uh, we started thinking about what some of these ionizers do. And that's really because in outdoor atmospheric chemistry, I looked at this and I was like, well, wait a minute, if you put ions into an outdoor air, outdoor atmosphere, we know that that's actually the best way to start to create little tiny particles, those ultra fine particles, really efficient. Um, but it's also a really great way to kickstart some oxidation chemistry. And again, I was worried that we were gonna make formaldehyde. And so what we did is we did some chamber studies and then Elliot Gall at Portland State did some actual field studies uh, looking at these systems that were in ducts. And what we saw was very consistent across those studies. We saw that there was no improvement on PM 2.5. So the way these products are supposed to work just didn't actually work. But we also saw that there were certainly production of some of these oxidized VOCs, some of these aldehydes that we were certainly a bit concerned about. So at least one study with one set of devices, both lab component and real world field component showed that the they, they don't work the way one would want them to. And as an environmental chemist, I, that's, you know, I believe in the precautionary principle. You don't use things that might cause damage until you've really demonstrated that they don't cause problems, especially when we know that ventilation and filtration works. So. And somewhere I saw, and I don't know if this was in your data or in Elliot Gall's data, but there's been a lot of these products sold to school districts. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And they're very popular because people really want to be able to send children back to school safely. And so these, these products are, my interpretation is that they're less expensive for school districts than overhauling the HVAC and infrastructure and building. And so they seem like a really good idea. But it also sounds, you know, whenever something sounds too good to be true, you should be really questioning it. And, and I think that's where these ionizers fall in is that they've been very aggressively marketed and they're thought to work. And the idea, the chemical principle behind them sounds lovely and it sounds like it should work. But in practice, we haven't, we either haven't seen that it works or for cases where people are saying that they work, we haven't seen that they're not also producing unintended chemical consequences. Interesting. Hey, John, let's go to the roundup. I know Dr. Farmer has a very hard stop at one o'clock, just letting everybody know. All right, let's go. Cliff, I want to first give you a shot. Any final thoughts, questions? Uh, just a couple of final thoughts. Um, these are things that uh, I've picked up in, uh, in in prior shows that I want to mention to you and, and mention to the guests who may not have heard those shows. You know, when we talk about COVID, uh, COVID is never alone. So that means there's other microorganisms with it and there's other chemistries that are with it. And um, the second thing was when it comes to the ionizers, a lot of the testing that's done by these companies is specifically done to prove a point. So it's not done to a government standard. It's they're doing a test to show that their device does something. And uh, so, so, so it's not a standardized test or anything like that. I'm done. Back to you, Joe. Okay. I, I've got a quick question on these hydroxyl generators i you know ozone was the big thing in the restoration world for a while and recently we've been seeing the sale of and promotion of hydroxyl generators 
to help with odors, uh, especially after fires or sewage uh, cleanup and so on. I'm wondering, have you done any work with or looked at the science behind these hydroxyl generators? Yeah, actually, hydroxyl radical chemistry is exactly what I've been studying in the outdoor air for um, for coming on to about two decades now. So, okay. so this is exactly the type of chemistry I think about. And so it's very well understood in, in the outdoor atmosphere. Bringing it indoors uh, raises these huge questions. I think, you know, if you're looking at industrial applications and odor control, I, I think it's a potentially quite interesting way. It does, it is quite effective at breaking down some molecules, but it will also produce uh, molecules like formaldehyde and in pretty high concentrations, and it's going to produce ultrafine particles. So anytime someone talks about putting hydroxyl radicals into a room, where people are going to actively be breathing air, then I have huge concerns. And I, those concerns are, are very parallel to concerns over releasing ozone into rooms where people are going to be breathing. So I, I think this is gonna be a new frontier in how we think about regulations. It's not to say that they're never going to be useful, but I think, um, I think one should be extremely cautious about putting any oxidizer or new chemistry into rooms where people are going to be breathing or places where people are going to be breathing that air. You know, it's interesting you, you bring it up that way. And I didn't realize how, how much you've looked at, at these hydroxyl radicals. I should have assumed that. But one of the reasons they're being promoted so heavily to restoration companies is they claim you can leave people in the building while you're operating these. And that's where I get my concerns. That's a very that that's a very misleading comment. I would be I would be very disturbed by companies telling people that you can breathe hydroxyl radical uh, hydro hydroxyl radicals. These are radicals that are so reactive. I mean, they're um, orders of magnitude more reactive than ozone. And ozone's ozone doesn't react with every molecule in the air. Hydroxyl radicals react with everything. There, so I think that that's a, that's a very dangerous idea that's being promoted without evidence that they're safe. But I, I think we, we know from atmospheric chemistry, you know, scientific literature, I mean, decades of study from many, many researchers showing that, that they, they kickstart some pretty substantial chemistry. And I, I think no one's, I think, I think atmospheric chemists thought it was such a crazy idea to breathe in hydroxyl radicals that no one's ever thought to study how they react with cell lung cells, right? I think this is so, so ridiculous that atmospheric chemists, that that's why we've never studied their health, health and safety, because it seems, seems like such an extreme thing to do. I mean, you, I think, I think I'd as soon, you know, drink bleach as I would breathe hydroxyl radicals. <laughs> Okay. Well, I, I guess the one thing they're pointing to is that they they react so quickly that they're gone before. I guess they would even get to to your lungs. I mean, is that does that well? If if they react so quickly, if you don't put enough out that you're not going to breathe them, then what are they doing in a home restoration project? All right. Very good. Very good. That's exactly all right. That's what we need to hear. Um, have you studied any of the chemistry of any of the alleged mold killer sprays and liquids? I'm just curious. I, I haven't. I've looked at some pesticide um, pesticide chemistry, like 2,4-D and, um, and some of the sort of more th those types of pesticides that really kill herbs. I haven't looked at mold killing um, the fungicides, um, but they're interesting. And I think they do some pretty, some pretty interesting chemistry. And I, again, you know, you always have to balance what your your building needs are and your industry needs are versus the health of individuals. And, um, but I think, I think they're really interesting questions about the chemistry of some of those, some of those products. We've got a little over a minute left before we go. Um, where are you headed next? What's your next research project uh what's on the you know what's on the horizon for for dr farmer <laughs> so in the indoor realm we're beginning to think about uh a project we're going to work with the uh with nist out in maryland uh on a project called casa the chemical assessment of surfaces and air this is a bit of a follow-up to home chem we're going to think about things like what happens when wildfire smoke gets into buildings and air pollution moves into a house what happens to it uh so that's going to be a big project and the next couple of years. 
And then the other thing we're doing is we're going to New York City uh, to think about how all of the consumer products that people use and personal care products, how they get from the indoor environment to the outdoor atmosphere and whether or not they, they affect outdoor urban air quality, which is what certainly some people think what's ha is what's happening. So we're going to look into that. Anything you'd like to add before we go? No, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you, as always. Always, always a pleasure. Uh, Dr. Delphine Farmer, great show today on indoor versus outdoor air chemistry, cooking, cleaning, and COVID. Uh, we will, uh, I want to post back my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Of course, our guest today, our growing group of loyal listeners, will be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening. <laughs>